0: I want to start by telling you a story about a preacher who made a mistake one Saturday night. He showed his two sons the passage that he was going to teach from the next morning in the service. And so his two, his two boys were little rascals and they decided, because they knew the passage that dad was going to preach on the next day, they took his Bible that he used and they glued the two pages together in there that he was going to read from. And so the next day the preacher got up and he opened his Bible to Genesis and uh, he started to read at the bottom of the, the first page and he read, And Noah, when he was 120 years old, took unto himself a wife who was, and turned the page, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Now, that's going to be a problem if uh, you are a Bible-believing church and uh, you hold to the truth of Scripture, you've got some explaining to do. And so this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the Scriptures, Uh, we're going to talk about the truth of them, and we're going to talk about this idea of truth. Winston Churchill uh, said, Truth is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it, ignorance may deride it, malice may distort it, but there it is still. You see, the truth is that truth never lies. If something is true, it can be defined. If you're unable to define it, it's either not true or you don't completely understand it. And at the moment, we live in a world that uh, believes in something called relative truth. We are surrounded by this idea of relative truth. And uh, we, we don't have time to go into all the facets of relative truth, uh, but I, I just want to explain a little bit of it so that we kind of understand the difference between uh, relative truth and absolute truth. Basically, relative truth means that you can hold something um, that's different to somebody else, and they can be competing truths about the same thing, and they can both be true. Uh, they aren't based on objectivity. They're based on subjectivity, personal Feelings and how you may interpret something. Therefore, it changes. It can uh, be self-defined. Uh, it is not objective, objectively measured or being able to see. It is at, completely at one's discretion. And they have the right to say what it is and whether it is true and how they interpret it. Basically, relative truth means anyone can hold whatever they want and even if it contradicts with someone else. And uh, we see this all the time. The, the most recent example that I've seen this is uh, I watched a documentary, um, and uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but uh, the, there is a documentary out there called What is a Woman? And uh, you may have seen this advertised where a guy uh, from the States goes around and interviews a bunch of um, higher education professors at large universities in America, medical professionals, psychologists, and he asked them simply to define what is a woman. And in today's society, where that is up for grabs at the moment, um, that seemed like a fairly straightforward question, but they had a lot of trouble answering that. And uh, what they really came up with in the end was that a woman is whatever you want it to be. And it depends on how you feel at the time. And nobody can actually tell you what that is, um, it is completely personal and subjective, and who are we to tell somebody else what a woman is? And so, uh, it, it was frustrating. It was sad. Uh, it was very. Um, uh, it, it didn't give me a lot of hope for uh, the future in that regards, um, and it was so enlightening to see how something so simple or something so straightforward in the past has now turned into something that is so muddy. And uh, all because there is this idea that truth is relative um, on certain things. Now, there are some things that there is optionals, options for truth. For instance, um, if I was giving directions from my house to here, um, there are multiple ways that you could get here. There's not one way. But then there are things in this life, in this world, that need to be objectively based in fact. Uh, I was a math teacher for a couple of years there, um, saw the light and left that, but... Um, one of the things I loved about maths is right. there was right and there was wrong. There was no kind of in-between. And one plus one was two, and it was always going to be two. And no matter what you felt about that answer, or no matter what you believed about that answer, it still remained true that one plus one equaled two. And so we see that there is some room for relative truth in some of our life. For instance, you know, the directions to get here. Um, but then there are things that there needs to be absolute truth on, and when we move away from these things, we end up with a society that implodes on itself. So, this morning, we're going to talk about the truth, and we're talking about the truth of the gospel, and so let me just, from the beginning, up front, answer the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And I think there's six major facets to the gospel that this that must be included, Right? And uh, you take one of these away and you have part of the gospel, but you don't have the whole gospel. And uh, you add something to this and it's probably not necessarily or could be in there. And so the first part of the gospel that you need to understand is this idea of sin. Basically, that there was a fall in humanity. And you probably don't need me to show you any examples of this. All of us realize that there are things that are wrong in the world. There's things that we do that are wrong, that there is a right and a wrong And there are things that miss the mark of God's perfection, and they're known as sin. And everybody in the world has sinned, and everybody in the world continues to sin. And the punishment for sin, the Scriptures say, is death. And you can read that in Romans. And so that's just just what it is. You don't get a, a say in what the punishment is. God has declared that the punishment for this sin is death. Uh, But He doesn't just leave us in that state. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And so we believe that in the gospel that Jesus is God and He is man, fully God, fully man. And He came to earth. And when He was here on earth, uh, He died on a cross. And He went to this cross and God, in His right uh, of justice, punished Christ for the sins that we had committed, And so God uh, was was right to do that, and Christ took our punishment on the cross, that He died the death that we deserved, and that atonement was made for our wrongdoing. That means that we can have salvation, that we can actually be free from the punishment of death and live eternally with God, and we do this by accepting it by grace through faith. What does that mean? It means that we don't deserve this, that there's nothing that we did that earned this. It was all because of Christ's actions that this was made possible. That means we've that, that is the grace and then we believe it through faith. Finally, now sorry, not finally, second lastly, that Christ didn't stay dead, that he was raised 3 days later. This is evidence Uh, to the truth that what Jesus said and did was true and that God had accepted the punishment on our behalf. And uh, that is the great truth of Christianity, that there is a resurrection, that it was a bodily and physical resurrection of Christ, that He uh, revealed Himself to His followers and 500 other people who were alive at the time, proving that He was physically resurrected. Then He ascended into heaven And the last part is that we believe that Christ will one day return back to earth. And when he returns, he will bring the kingdom, which lasts forever. And those who have believed in him for the salvation of their sins will enter into the kingdom. And those who haven't will not. That, in a nutshell, are the six kind of facets of the gospel. So when I talk about the gospel today and the truth of the gospel and the teaching of the gospel as we work our way through the passage, that is what I'm referring to, right? Those six kind of core things. And it's important because in the last three weeks, we've been working our way through 2 Timothy. It's this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, who was his protege, who he had left in charge of uh, the church in Ephesus. He was to bring leadership to that place. And uh, in the first week, we looked at the the main purpose of the church, and that is to preach and protect the gospel. And uh, that's, the, that's what we've just talked about, right? The, that is the gospel. They had to preach and protect that no matter the cost. And in the second week, we looked at what the cost is going to be, and that is that you're going to suffer for it. And uh, Paul doesn't sort of pull any punches there. He just lets you know from the start, if you are going to share the gospel, if you're going to be on mission for God, at some stage you are going to suffer for it if you haven't already. And then last week we looked at what is it going to take to kind of to do this, to be involved in this. It's going to take a single-mindedness that a soldier has when he is part of an army. There is a singular focus for the Christian in this life because we know that in this time between Christ's ascension and His return is the time that people can come to faith, right? And so God um, has given us this task right now, right here for your life, where you are in this moment, and you need to be a single-minded soldier. And now Paul is going to turn to Timothy and give him instructions and the church on what to do with the false teachers, right? Because <clears throat> what we know about Timothy is he's timid. Um, some people call this book Second Timidity because, you know, Timothy is so scared and, and backing away from what he is to rightfully do. And one of the reasons that is is because there was false teachers in the church who were, who were teaching a different gospel, And so that's why it's so important that we go through what the gospel is. And in a moment, we're going to see what the gospel isn't and why it's important. And Paul's going to tell Timothy, this is what you do with false teaching in the church. right? And this is really important, not just then, but for us now, because this just creeps into the church if you don't kind of stay on top of it. False teaching just has a way of worming its way into the church And when the church accepts it and and runs with it, they drift further and further away from the truth of the gospel and the scriptures. And just like what happens to society, it starts to implode of itself. And we don't want that, right? No one wants to be part of that church. We're not going to be that church. And so let's go through the text this morning and see what Paul has to say about what to do with false teachers. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 to 26. The words won't be on the screen this morning. had a busy week, so I didn't get to it. But hopefully you've got a Bible, or everyone has a phone, there is a Bible on there. If you don't have it on there, you should have it on there so you can read it all the time, right? When you're waiting at the bus stop, which nobody else in Toowoomba, but uh, you know, whenever you get the opportunity. So you'll just have to follow along in in the physical Bible that you have in front of you, or grab out your phone, open the Bible app. Don't open your Instagram. uh, and uh, we can we follow along with me starting in verse 14. What we're going to see in this passage is there's two groups of people, right? There is uh, two groups and they're on the opposite side of each other. There's a positive example um, for us to follow. And then there is a negative example for us to avoid. One group handles the word of truth and the other has gone away from the truth. In verse 21, Paul's going to call one of these groups useful and one of these groups useless. One is approved by and known by God. The other is a captive of the devil, he says. And we have these imperatives, which are commands that Paul gives to Timothy and to the leaders of the church. There's a bit of a change in tone here because... Uh, in the first half of the letter, Paul was specifically talking to Timothy, and then he kind of turns and says, now, Timothy and the leaders, and this is indicated by um, the imperatives that are second-person, plural par- pronouns. So when he says, you, do this, it's not a singular you, it's a plural, and so he's talking to the leadership of the church, and there's this, this, this turn away from just singular, Timothy. Timothy. So here we are in verse 14. This is what he says. First imperative, first command. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Here's our first command. It's very serious, so serious, in fact, that Paul instructs Timothy to charge them before God. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words. It means don't have word wars. To not dispute about words, why? Because it is useless. It leads to the ruin of the hearers. Paul says that in no way is it useful, beneficial, or advantageous. <clears throat> in fact, it leads to the ruin of the hearers. He says, and this word here for ruin in the Greek is katastrophe, right? Which is where we get our English word catastrophe. Paul says this is going to be a catastrophe for you guys if you do this Paul is uh, saying these words will not be beneficial they will lead to disaster what exactly is he talking about what other words that he's going to talk about we'll see in just a sec now he's going to talk to the, about the opposite side of the coin the other group in verse 15 those who accurately handle the word of truth he says verse 15 do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. On one side, you have word quarreling. On the other side, you have those who rightly handle the word of truth. Rightly handled there, that verb, is it's used elsewhere to describe this idea of straight cutting. Uh, it's used of... Um, of the Romans making a straight road or a direct path or cutting a straight line of linen. It means that they are clearly and rightly and accurately expounding the word of truth, which is God's word. And both of these groups are responsible before God for their actions. Verse 14 says, charge them before God. Verse 15 says, present yourself to God as one approved. There is an accountability for the way that we conduct our life. The words that we use, the truth that we believe, the truth that is taught. Both positive and negative. And the one who chooses to oppose the truth at the detriment of others will have God to answer to, while the other who rightly handles the truth according to God's word, will be approved with nothing to be ashamed of. That's what Paul says in those first two verses. Now he's going to give us some more information about this idea of quarreling with the words in what we are talking about here. Verse 16, he says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Himenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Let's just start at the beginning of this section. But avoid irreverent babble, the NASB translate this, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. Why, did, why, does, he, why does it say worldly? What, what is the meaning there? It is this idea, this word has has nothing to do with God in who He is or in His truest sense. It has no interest in the things of God that He has revealed to us. And for that reason, it's no wonder that Paul says that if you were to teach this, it would lead to ungodliness. It would lead you further away from the truth that God has revealed. And it seems that there was a group of people who no longer were holding to Paul's gospel that he had taught Timothy, that he had taught to the Ephesian church. And they had begun to bring in foreign ideas that were contrary to Paul's gospel. And Paul names two of them. He, he, he names them, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says that their talk will spread like gangrene. Gangrene. And to understand this, we've got to understand a little bit about gangrene. And I I have a great story about gangrene, actually. And in 1925, um, there was a there was a young no, he was a a baby actually born. He's uh, and his name was um, Kevin Richard Turner, and he was my pop. And uh, he was a great pop. And when he was 17 years old, he went hunting with his friend. He was a farmer at the time, farming background. And he and his friend went into the paddock and they were just shooting rabbits. And uh, my pop's friend was following a rabbit with his rifle and this rabbit dashed in front of my pop. And as it went in front of him, my, his friend pulled the trigger and he shot my pop in the leg. And so my pop went to hospital with a gunshot wound to the leg and there was a a traveling doctor there at the time and he looked at my pop's leg and assessed it and decided that the best thing to do would be to put his leg in plaster. And uh, it turned out that was actually a really bad thing to do for my pop's leg. And then there was another doctor that came a little bit later and this doctor had had some experience in the war treating people with gunshot wounds and he knew the smell of gangrene. And he came to my pop and he smelt it. And he ripped off the plaster, and sure enough, my pop's leg had been infected and was gangrenous. And he said to my pop that uh, we need to cut your leg off to save your life. And uh, he said to him that every hour that you wait to make this decision, you are going to lose an extra inch of your leg. And uh, gangrene is the decay of tissue that develops in a part of the body where the blood supply can no longer get to because of injury or disease or infection. And uh, when you can't get blood supply to an, a tissue or an organ or a part of your body, it, it dies. And so this is a really serious problem. And, and, and so my pop got his leg amputated at 17 in order that the rest of his life may be lived and he might be saved. And uh, so I only ever knew my pop with one leg. It was, it was, he had a, um, a, a fake one by, you know, whenever I um, was born and, and things like that. But he used to take it off at night when, you know, he was finished work and he'd sit there and he'd have this half leg. And uh, But that's all I ever knew of him. But he, at one stage, he had two legs. But gangrene set in and there was nothing that could be, do, be done other than to cut it out. And Paul says that the spreading of untruth, that is contrary to the gospel in the church, is like gangrene. If you don't cut it out, it's going to spread around the body and bring death to your church. So what was it that these two and others had been teaching? Well, they'd been teaching, verse 18... The resurrection had already happened and they were upsetting the faith of some. What, what does he mean that they were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place? Well, clearly he's not just talking about Christ's resurrection because he had confirmed that in verse 8. We looked at that last week. It wasn't about Christ's physical resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection of the saints, and basically saying that this is a spiritual resurrection and that there wasn't a future bodily resurrection to come. What does that mean? That means we're in the kingdom. That means life is here and now. Live it up. Get what you can. Enjoy yourself. Stop at nothing. Pleasure awaits. Go after it. Deny yourself nothing. Get as much as you can. Accumulate. We're in the kingdom. The resurrection has already taken place. Now, does that sound different to some of the teaching that Paul has been working through in the letter so far that we've covered in the last three weeks? You know, this still pops up all the time across churches where we have this idea That this life right now is all about health and wealth and prosperity. And God wants you to have as much as you can. Material possessions are yours. You just have to name it and claim it. You can be rich, you don't need to be unhealthy. It's this idea that the kingdom is here right now in its fullness because the resurrection's already taken place. And Paul says, No. What has Paul been saying to Timothy so far? He says, Now is actually the time to preach and protect the gospel, and you're going to suffer for it. Timothy, fight the good fight because we've got a mission. And it's to further the gospel like a soldier. And you're going to be single-minded on that. And the kingdom is to come. And there are rewards in that. But right now, it is time to preach and protect the gospel. You're to be like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. And one day Christ will physically return. And He will physically bring in a real kingdom, and He will physically resurrect those with a real body into this kingdom. And now is not that time. We look forward to that, we yearn for that. But the resurrection of the saints has not taken place yet. Now, are there things that Christ has done that we are thankful for, that He has restored in us, that He is doing a great work in us, that He has made us into a new creation? Absolutely, yes and amen. But there are also things where Christ has not finished His work, and one of these things is that the resurrection hasn't taken place. And this is what normally happens within churches, is that they take something... That is true, in a sense, and they distort it. And, it. and it's normally distorted to fit an agenda. Let me give you some examples of, of where this takes place in churches. At the moment, they take something that is biblical, that is right, and distort it. Marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman, yes? And anyone who's in love. You see, it's all about love, right? God is love. Under the pressure of science and being able to prove and recreate natural things, miracles are now out. The supernatural there is no room for, and so miracles are now reinterpreted in Scripture as to have a natural understanding an explanation Christ didn't walk on the water, there was a sandbank, they only thought he was walking on water, those sorts of things. Jesus is the way to God alone, along with Buddha and Allah. Scripture is supreme authority, as well as experience and how you feel. Jesus was a healer, and the only reason you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. Jesus was a good teacher, along with a lot of other historical figures. God loves you and accepts you just as you are. Just be careful with that. God loves you. Yes, God accepts you based on what Christ has done. God created you, and and so these desires within you must be there because God has placed them there. You see, they take something that is on the surface true and right and biblical, and then it's distorted into something it's never meant to be, that this doesn't teach. And what we end up doing is we end up creating God in our image, instead of us being created in God's image. And most of the time, it is just so that we can get approval for the things that we want to do, and not have any sort of guilt or contradiction of truth. And so Paul tells Timothy, those who are teaching that the resurrection has taken place are spreading spreading gangrene throughout the church and it's ruining people's faith and it's promoting ungodliness. And this is why the truth matters. You see, because the truth ripples and you see the ripple effects As time goes on and people begin to believe things that aren't scriptural, that aren't based in the truth that God's revealed. And it brings hurt and it brings pain and it brings destruction. And so Paul is very quick to tell Timothy, you have to squash this. And Paul warns in verse 19, as we go on, he sheds light on what God thinks about false Teaching. Verse 19, "But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." He begins with the metaphor of these foundations and seals. And basically what we can understand from the time of Paul's writing is that when they would build buildings, they would often have a foundation stone at the bottom, and they would inscribe it with a seal. And on that stone, the seal would say, who owns this building or the purpose of this building? And so Paul's like, here is the foundation stone that God has written. And on the seal, he says, the Lord knows who are His. This is a quote out of Numbers 16.5, which is the rebellion of Korah, right? What happened in Numbers 16? Well, Moses and Aaron are leading the people... Right? And they've led them out of uh, Egypt for the Exodus, and they're now wandering the wilderness. And Korah and a guy called Dathan, they confront Moses and Aaron. And uh, they tell them that their leadership has gone too far. And uh, they tell them that uh, along with a, a posse of their followers, about 250, I think uh, Numbers says, uh, they come before them and they say, oh, I, we can approach God just like you can. And we are holy just like you are, and, uh, and you don't need to lead us anymore because we can do this. We can take care of this. In fact, we'll do a better job than what you have done. And Moses says to them in the morning, Korah and Dathan, the Lord will show you who are his and who are holy and who will bring, who he will bring near to him. And the next day, the Lord separates the two, uh, the, the, the two parties and the earth opens up and swallows Korah and Dathan and then fire comes down from heaven and consumes the 250. You see, because God had decided that Moses and Aaron would be the leader of the nation of Israel for that time. From the Exodus through to the wilderness. And this wasn't up for grabs. It wasn't a debate. It wasn't a democracy where you could vote on who was going to be the leader. God had already decided that, decreed that, that would be true. And so those who rebelled were destroyed. And Paul says to Timothy in the church that those who are spreading false teaching like Hymenaeus and Philetus are like Korah and Dathan. And you need to know that God knows who are His. Translation, you better watch what you teach because the truth of the gospel has been decided already by God. It's not up for grabs. And God knows who belong to Him. See, this is comforting to those who teach the truth, and it's tragic to those who depart from it. And then he says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. To those who claim to be a believer, you need to depart from this false teaching. Those who are Christians that remain faithful to the truth, as Paul has preached it, because there is a firm foundation of truth that God has built. And if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you need to hold to that truth because it is the power of God, and it makes you useful for service. See, God has decided that the redemption of humanity would be through Jesus Christ, and that is the gospel. Right? We explained it at the start, and that that gospel is set in stone; it does not change. And and as Jesus ascended, He charged His disciples to go to all the nations, teach them what I have taught you. And so, when we hold to it, we become useful in that mission. And so, Paul says, hey, you got to depart from the false teaching, depart from iniquity. And we're useful service, and service doesn't save us, service is because we know we are saved. And Paul's going to illustrate this idea of service in the next couple of verses, where he talks about vessels in a house. And what you need to know about the first century is that people weren't living exactly the same way that we're living now. We'll see that in a sec. But one of the things that they did have that we kind of do a little bit is uh, they had these nice crockery and Dinner plates, right? Some of you might still have this. My mum has this. Like she has a good set of dinner plates, and you bring them out for special occasions, and they've got gold around the outside of them, like a line of gold, and you don't put them in the dishwasher, Peter, because uh, it ruins them. And so, you know, we have a nice set of... Well, mum has a nice dinner set. Some of you may have that or not, but 1st Century had this idea as well in that they have jars and containers that were held in high esteem. They were, they were used to hold important, expensive things. They had special contents, and they were made out of either silver or gold. And then they had containers that were used for things that were pretty gross. And uh, you you, you use those ones for some things, I'll explain in a sec. And um, they weren't made out of gold and silver, They they were made out of clay or wood or less expensive everyday things, and they would get ruined. And so, Paul's now says in verse 20, Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honourable use and some for dishonourable. And what you need to know is that when Paul says dishonourable use, he's not saying they're a little dusty or they're a little bit lower than gold and silver, He's saying dishonorable use um, was used for what we now have plumbing for. And uh, I was talking with a couple of folks down the front here a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the fact, I don't know how we got onto this, but we got onto this, that Brisbane only got sewerage in the 1960s, right? That's pretty late. And um, up until that time, human waste was disposed in buckets, and then it was collected by these guys called night soil men, right? They would come around to your house and they would literally collect those buckets that were full of your human waste. And I know this isn't the nicest thing to talk about on a Sunday morning, but um, this will stop you thinking about lunch for a moment. Uh, And Paul wants Timothy to be really clear about this and wants us to be really clear about this is that there is a difference between the gold and silver vessels and the wooden clay vessels, and what differentiates the two is what you use them for and what it, what it contains. And the gospel is the most wonderful, most magnificent, most humbling, most loving, most gracious, most merciful, most precious, most life-changing, most hope-filled, most peaceful, most restorative... Most God glorifying truth there ever has been or will be. And it was also the most expensive because it cost God the death of his own son. And so, anyone who's heard it, who believes it, who carries it, you put it in gold and silver. Those are the vessels because what's inside it is so precious. It is more precious than anything else. And the flip side of that is Paul is saying anyone who departs from this, anyone who's teaching something contrary to this, what you're really doing is you're carrying around wood and clay vessels and you're offering excrement to people in comparison to the truth of the gospel. So, those who are false teachers in the church, what should they do? Verse 21, they have to stop it and cleanse themselves. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. In other words, come back to the truth, the truth of the Scriptures about who God is, who Jesus Christ is, what He's done, the truths of Christianity, and you will be useful for the gospel again. It's not the end for the false teachers. There is room for change if there's a willingness to cleanse oneself. And then He talks in this last section that we're going to tackle today about how we are to treat those who are the false teachers in the church. And I think this is really important for us to understand and grasp because it will make all the difference. It says, verse 22, I'm going to have to move over this pretty quickly and, and just focus at the end. So, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. It's really important that we have and understand this section of Paul. See, too often in the pursuit of truth and the protection and to preach the gospel, we use that as an excuse to treat one another poorly. We can say harsh words to those who disagree with us or are in the wrong, things like, oh, you're such an idiot, why would you say that? He's, and you just write people off. And Paul says, no, you're to correct them with gentleness. See, Paul has this ability to distinguish the content of the teaching from the person. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant, and we'd expect him to say people, right? But he doesn't say people. He says controversies. Have nothing to do with the controversies. Be kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring, and correcting those with gentleness. Why? Second half of that. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul says, there is hope for those who have gone astray. See, the goal of correction is that it would lead to repentance. Notice, it is God who is the one who leads people to repentance. And it is through that same channel that Paul is so firm on, it is the truth. And if the truth is true, it doesn't change. We don't change the story to suit people's desires or alter the content because it may offend. Because Paul says that the way that they move to repentance is by God doing a work in them, helping them to see that it is true. And then he says, "If those who aren't are actually captured by the devil to do his will. And of course, that's the case. Anyone who is teaching or aiding something that is contrary to God is aiding his enemy. And so, by correcting with gentleness those in the church who are deceived, we are hoping for God to bring them to their senses and lead them to repentance. The point is is not to cut off a sick member. The point is to make the community well. Just as we wrap up, a few really simple application points for us today. The good news is, I think Restoration Church, um, in my nine months that I've been here, I really haven't seen a lot of this. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that's worth celebrating. I don't preach this message here because I've seen a major problem across the congregation or in the teaching or in anything like that. I teach it because that's where the text is, has gone. And I think that's encouraging. Over and over, I hear um, as I talk to people about, you know, why do they come here or what what, what brought them to the church or what do they love about the church? There's, there's a lot of good things and but one of them is just like the biblical preaching and teaching and, and we want that to be the case. Um and and I think for the majority of the time I, that's what I have seen. And we want you to know we're sticking with that. You know, we 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 don't want to depart from that. We think that is right and true and that what that is what God would have us teach is his truth found in the scriptures. And uh And that kind of leads me to my first application point, is that it's just assessing the teaching of others. That especially includes me. And so you need to assess the content of my teaching, and Pete's teaching, and Tom's teaching. Um, You know, am I teaching something that's wrong, or that you believe to be false, as the Scriptures have shown? You should talk to me about that, gently. But you should talk to me about that. And I'm not talking about theologically debated biblical interpretations of things that, you know, whether Calvinism or Arminianism or premillennial or amillennial, and if you don't know what those are, don't worry about it. But like, I'm not talking about those sort of biblically revealed sort of things that there is room for healthy and logical debate back and forth on, trying to understand the truth of God. And how he works. I, I'm not talking about those things. I think there's space for that rigorous debate. I'm talking about the clear teaching of Scripture. Where the truth has been revealed. Things about what I, what I mentioned earlier. And so you should assess Teaching. And see if it lines up with Scriptures. And if it doesn't, then you should come and talk to whoever is doing the teaching. And you do it in a gentle way, in a kind way, because we never want to teach something that is contrary to what God has revealed in Scripture. Secondly, you can correct uh, the idea of correcting others to help them see the truth that God's truth is the only truth. This is something that we all need help with. You see, we are able to move away from the truth very easily if left to ourselves. See, we've all got desires that are contrary to the truth of scripture. They're all inside of us. And sometimes we need others to remind us of the truth, to to show us and point us back to the truth. One, uh, one of my old pastors used to say, There is nothing more creative than a person in self justification. Right? That is, that is in all of us. That we have this ability to self justify and to be able to do that. We go and find some, some, some truth that we believe to be true. And then if we only had somebody come alongside us and point out to us that what you're doing there is actually just self-justification based on a lie or a distortion of the truth. And we all need that, right? I need that. I know that's in me. And that's part of why we have community groups here at the church. That you would be part of a group where there would be a small number who can gather around you, who know what's going on in your life, who can speak the truth into your life based on the Scriptures. And you would tell them, hey, this is going on for me This is the desire of my heart. This is where I would like to head if left up to myself. And they can say, hey, why don't we open the scriptures and just see what God's word has to say about that and where that will lead you. And I don't think that's going to go well for you. I don't think you really want that. We all need people like that in our life. Lastly, very simple point nothing new here. Read the scriptures. Read them. Have you got a better source of truth than this? Like, is there something better out there that is offering you the truth than this book? I don't think any of us do. I know I don't. This is the primary way that God has chosen to reveal Himself and the primary way that we hear from God. And if you disagree with me on that, then you can come talk to me after and I will show you the error of your ways. Or you can just read chapter 3, verse 16. And Paul will tell you. You've got to cut out the gangrene to make the body well. The gangrene is the teaching, not the person. You see, before my pop was shot in the leg... He was running with a bunch of rascals. He said he had no doubt that if he stayed with this group of people, he would turn into an immoral, unhealthy man, chasing his passions and desires wherever they may lead. But something happened in that hospital when he lost his leg. None of his friends, so-called friends, came to visit. Not one of them came to the hospital. The guy who shot him never even apologised. And my pop realised the truth, that they weren't his friends at all. And so as he got out of the hospital, he decided that he would make a change. And he left those friends behind. He left the life of farming, partly due to his leg, And he decided he would get a taxi license. And with his prosthetic, he could drive. And so he started becoming a taxi driver, and he would pick people up from the Western Line Hotel in Oki, which is still there today. And there was a barmaid at the uh, Western Line Hotel, and her name was Claire. And they fell in love, had five kids. They moved to Dolby, and they came to faith in Jesus, and they started attending the Brethren Church out in Dolby which would eventually be pastored by a man by the name of Graham Kerr. You may have heard of him. Why do I tell you that story? Because sometimes you have to lose a leg to heal the body. And good leadership in any church has to confront false teaching so that the person may know the truth and be changed forever and the body stays healthy. Paul tells us to tell the truth with gentleness to those who oppose it so that God in his mercy might lead them to repentance, escape the snare of the devil, and the church may be useful to him for the furthering of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the truth of the Scriptures. I know I'm prone to wander. We are all prone to wander from it at times. I pray that this church, Restoration Church, would never leave the truth of the Scriptures, that we would be a people who hold fast to the gospel, to the truth that is revealed in Your Word, regardless of circumstance, regardless of cultural pressures, regardless of our own desires. Pray for myself, for Pete, for Tom, for anyone who shares this platform, that we would preach truth, that it would go forth into the hearts of our people, and that we might be changed forever by it. I pray for our congregation. That as they go out into the world, as they go to workplaces and schools and universities, wherever they might find themselves, and they are faced with things that are contrary to what is good and right and true, as taught in your word, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give them a resolve deep down in their soul that they would know what is good, know what is true, and that they would hold to it for the rest of their days no matter the cost, no matter what comes their way. Help each one of us to help one another in reminding each other of truth by pointing out the truth when we've believed lies or we want to head in a direction that's contrary to what you revealed. We thank you for Second Timothy, the lessons that we're learning. Give us a heart that is open to change. Lead us to repentance where we need it. And if we have been off base in any way when it comes to the gospel, change your heart on that, that we may repent and follow what you have taught in your scriptures. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Amen.